An old-timey ghost realizes sometimes the best way to hurt somebody is to hurt their pocketbook. We say goodbye to a legendary and feared author. Then we meet a young woman who met her soulmate and couldn't wait to begin a new life with the one she loves the most. But then an alien appeared and told her, you can't get married. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. Hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys got a lot of cool plans for this weekend. We got so much stuff to cover. First off, let's give a shout out to our fan art Friday submission. This one actually we used to use a lot until we went to the Ash Black logo pretty much across the board and now we're doing the fan art Friday. So this is from John. Longtime listeners of the show will remember this artwork used to be all over the place. So John, thank you so much for, I think on the YouTube you'll still see it a lot too, but John, thank you so much for sending this art in. Really, really appreciate it. And then let's give a shout out to one of our legacy Patreon supporters, a longtime listener of the show, our Forrest Finn correspondent coming into Dead Rabbit Command right now. It's Beatrice Leva. Everyone give a round of applause to Beatrice. Really, really appreciate your continued support for the show. She's also my TikTok consultant. I've been trying to do more stuff on TikTok. I'm just limited to the amount of time. I'm not doing dances. Before you guys all go check out the TikTok channel, it's not me doing Fortnite dances. I'm trying to take episodes and shrink them down to a minute. And I've been really good with it. Because I know that's what you guys love most. You guys want the episodes to get shorter. I'm taking stories and making them a minute long. Getting really good at it. It's just a matter of time of putting the pictures together and stuff like that. We're going to do a lot of TikTok in the future. And Beatrice has really helped out on that front. So Beatrice, let's go ahead and toss you the keys to the Dead Rabbit Dirgible. We're going to leave behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are headed out to North Carolina. Beatrice is expertly flying this vehicle. She's done it before. We're headed out to Caribus County in North Carolina. Specifically, Old Skinflint's Mine. This is actually, I think, the last holdover of... I had that ghost theme week, and then it spilled over into the week after it. I was just happy I was able to find all these ghost stories. This one also takes place in North Carolina at a mine. I could have all fit them into one week, but it was too much haunted mine for a week. This story is really awesome. I just didn't want you to guys be like, oh, me, oh, mine. Too many ghost stories. Do you like that? Do you like the Friday puns? John's like, give me my artwork back. We're landing in Carabas County, the year 1799, and that was when a 12-year-old boy found a big rock in the water. <laughs> There's a bunch of rocks, but this one was gold and shiny. Paul, look at what I found. I found this rock. And the dad goes, oh, that's kind of cool. My kid, my kid obviously has some weird fetish for rocks, but we'll deal with that in the future. Right now, why don't we use that rock as a doorstop? And then one day a dude was walking by and he goes, that's weird. How come this door, how come this door has stayed open? They're like, well, if you look down, if you crane your neck down, you'll see there is a doorstop there. And the guy goes, oh, and he realizes this doorstop is a hunk of gold. This is when the first gold rush in America started. It started in North Carolina. You guys are like, Jason, you should have given us this information last week. We were talking about all these North Carolina gold mine stories. The problem was that information was in the notes for this story. It wasn't in the notes for those other stories. So this guy goes, tell you what, I'll give you $3.50 for that doorstop. 
And the guy's like, yeah, sure, that's a lot of money back then. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of money right now. And so he pays it, but then eventually the homeowner finds out that that rock, that shiny gold-colored rock, was actually gold worth $3,500 in old-timey money. So that's like Scrooge McDuck bucks. So eventually, he tra eventually he's able to track down the guy. I think he did get some more money for that doorstep. But a bunch of other people started coming in the area, the first major gold rush in American history. North Carolina was the leading producer of gold until 1848, when gold was discovered in California. And people go, North Carolina, pewee, this place sucks. Before people realized that North Carolina wasn't where it's at, you had people from all over the world come to North Carolina to try to strike it rich. They did have a rule, though. No slaves were allowed. No slaves. This is interesting. I didn't have thought about this, because if you thought, think about it, the gold rush was during slavery times. California wasn't a slave state, but North Carolina was it. They had a rule. No slaves were allowed in the mine because they were afraid that they would hide gold. Can you believe this? They were afraid that slaves would try to purchase their freedom, try to purchase their freedom and the freedom of their friends and family by finding gold and then coming, coming back out of the cave and being like, I don't work for you anymore. You have a big chunk of gold. They couldn't allow it. They couldn't allow these people to actually, you know, be people. So no slaves were allowed. So they had to import labor from around the world and people wanted to come. They wanted to try to make money. Enter Jonathan McIntosh. He's the owner of the McIntosh mine. 450 foot deep mine. It seems to be doing pretty well. Lots of gold is coming out of it. But it's not enough for Jonathan McIntosh. Because despite him saying, oh, we got the best timber in the world. We got the best, uh, we got the best other stuff that makes a mine function. You want dynamite? Our dynamite is dynamite. Everyone in the mine knew that Jonathan was, was a liar. They'd go down there and they'd see the wood. Was, it wasn't rotting, but he would use very, very new timber. So it wasn't strong enough. And <laughs> they had seen that dynamite explode and they weren't impressed. It was just like regular dynamite. They knew that Jonathan was selling them a bill of goods. Like, he wasn't actually putting money into the mine. Which, not you don't go down there to be bedazzled, right? They weren't worried about the fact that it wasn't the jazziest place to work. They were worried about their own safety. And they could tell he was cutting corners. So people were like, uh, I don't know. So as the mine got deeper and deeper, it was harder to find people to go down there. There's a local miner named Joe McGee. He's an expert. He's been doing this all of his life. The first tunnel he crawled out of was his mother, and he hasn't stopped crawling through tunnels since. And he knows the reputation of Macintosh Mine. It is not safe. But no one else is going deep into the mine. Jonathan calls up Joe and says, Hey, listen, I got a deal for you. You go into my, you go into my super safe mine at the deepest point and start digging and doing your mine magic. And then everyone else will go down to join you because you're such a cool guy, Joe. You're so cool. Everyone will follow you. And Joe goes, listen, I know the stories. Your mine is not safe. You cut a bunch of corners. But I will do it. However, if I die, you have to pay my wife $1,000. Today would be the equivalent of about $30,000. So a pretty good life insurance policy. Actually, that's kind of lame for a life insurance policy. Anyways. Joe goes, if I go down there and I die, you have to pay my wife $1,000. And Jonathan was kind of shocked. How dare he say his mine isn't safe? What are you talking about? I mean, I don't go down there myself. I wouldn't let any of my friends and family down there. But it's totally safe. And in fact, it's so safe. I want you to know if you die, whatever that is, 
I'll give your wife $2,000. Joe goes into the mine. Couple days pass. Hey, you don't remember that guy, Joe? We used to kick it with all the time. He was a really good miner and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen him lately? Uh-uh, no. I thought he was hanging out with you. No, I wish. He was pretty cool. Couple weeks go by. Hey, dude, what's what are you doing, man? Oh, sorry, I thought you were Joe. I thought you were super cool. I don't really care about you. But speaking of Joe, have you seen him? No, dude, no one's seen Joe for weeks. Not even his wife. Joe must have left. I mean, that's the only thing we can think of. I mean, we do know that he's working in a super dangerous in industry, but maybe he just left and left his wife. Oh, okay. Now, nobody knew about this arrangement, this life insurance arrangement, except for Joe's wife. And Joe's wife went to Jonathan McIntosh and said, Hey, you know, pretty sure my husband's dead. He's not one to run away. He was in your mind and he told me that he told you he would only do it. And, the, you know, the thousand, you know, <laughs> rewind the podcast a little bit. Remember that part? And Jonathan goes, Oh, I did say that. But he didn't die. Nobody's found his body. And he probably just left you. You're kind of busted. You're kind of busted, and he left you, so I don't have to give you any money. It was if he died, I gave you the money, not if he, like, cheated on you or something like that. Slams the door in her face. One night, a miner who was also a good friend of Joe hears a knock on his door. And standing there is Joe McGee's ghost. He thought it was just Joe McGee. He thought he just really cheated on his wife. No, it was his ghost. And he's floating there. It doesn't say if he has Casper legs. It doesn't say if he's eating a bunch of hot dogs like Slimer. But he is. He's inventing the hot dogs so he can eat them. He's floating there. And he tells his friend, hey, dude, you won't believe what happened to me. And the friend's like, let me guess, you died? Yes. What was the, what was the giveaway? The fact that I have Casper legs? Why do I keep saying Casper legs? Casper actually had legs. But you know what I mean? Like little wavy ghost body. He's like, listen, forget that anachronism. Forget what's going on with that host. I died in the mine, dude. I went down there and that jerk, Jonathan, had fresh timbers, the like the freshest. Like these were amoeba trees down there and they collapsed. I was killed in the mine. Joe says, listen, I'm gonna tell you where my body's at in the mine. So maybe you can give me a proper burial. I mean, I am buried. I am buried by tons of rock. But, you know, bury me in the soil where it's a little nicer. And, hey, do you know, I don't know if I told you about this. I probably should have told more people about this. But I arranged for a life insurance policy. Did my wife ever get any money? And the friend goes, no, he didn't. And the ghost is like, ah, nabbit. Then he <laughs> just turns and he slowly floats away. It's interesting that he didn't go visit his wife, right? It's interesting that he goes and visits his friend and asks him all this stuff. He could have went to his wife first, or last even. I mean, like, hey, honey, I'm not home. I'm just the ghost. But hey, did you get that money? Also, I love you. Like, he never visits his wife, but he does visit this dude. But before he floats away, he turns back around. Because I forgot this detail. I read a bit more of my notes. He turns around and he goes, and... I curse the Macintosh mine forever, 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 forever. And then, and then he gets tired of saying that. He says it for like 30, 40 minutes. Then he turns around and floats away. Jonathan's miner friend gets some other miners together. They confront Macintosh. They go to his house and there's basically formed a lynch mob and they want to know what's going on. Jonathan 
admits to this. He says, yes, okay, oh, you got me, you got me, my bad. I sent this expert miner down in the mine shaft, and yeah, sure, the timber might have been a little new, and he died, and I realized that he died pretty early on, so I did the noble thing, and I just told everyone he was a cheater, and he left his wife, and he is forced to give the wife this $2,000. And the miners were able to go down and locate Joe's body and give it a proper burial. End of the story, right? Not as far as Joe's concerned. Because what happens is miners are still working in that mine. They're like, yeah, the guy did, the owner of this mine did murder someone and try to rip off his widow. But, you know, works work. As they're working in this mine, they would see Joe's ghost floating through the darkness. Ooh. Ooh, he's like putting, he's putting gold back in the mountain. They're like, Joe, come on, man. You know how long that took? He's like phasing it through the mountain. He's like, Meow. Find it again, dudes. He's flown away. <laughs> See, on the flip side, he's haunting this mine. So miners are like, listen, man, there's a bunch of gold in North Carolina. This is the first major gold rush. We can go work anywhere because this mine is definitely haunted. Whenever we go down there, there's this ghost dude floating around. Jonathan McIntosh can't hire anyone to work in this mine. They all know the legend. Not only do they know what Jonathan McIntosh did, but they know the story of this ghost that when you go into this mine, there is a chance you will see the specter of Joe McGee standing behind you. But McIntosh Mine is full of gold. This mine shaft has rich, rich veins of gold. But no one wants to work it. And the story goes that old man Jonathan McIntosh went insane over time. And that mine became known as Skinflint's Mine because he was so worried about saving money. He put profit above his workers. And no one would work in old Skinflint's Mine because a ghost guarded it. It followed them through the darkness. It haunted them. Old man McIntosh slowly went insane and died in poverty. He could have been a millionaire, but nobody wanted to work in the mine haunted by Joe McGee. And some people say he still haunts the mine to this day. Even though no one's mining it, and now he's just floating there. He's like kicking rocks around. He's like, oh, come on. Can't anyone come down here and mine it? I want to haunt them. Interesting ghost story. He actually has a purpose. It's not just a ghost walking down a hallway. It's an economic terrorist ghost. He's basically ruined this guy's business because this guy not only killed him, but then tried ripping off his wife. Just interesting ghost story. How true is it? The mine is called Macintosh's Mine. I did find this story repeated several times, but did Joe McGee actually exist? Who knows? These This story goes so far back, I really wasn't able to find a lot of genealogical. It's not like I look at a family tree and one of it branches off and it's a ghost floating through a mine. I'm like, oh, there's Joe McGee. Interesting story, nonetheless. Classic American ghost story. Beatrice, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind North Carolina. We are headed out to Santander, Spain. 
a while back, I got an email from a listener named Colin O'Connor, and they said, you know, you do a lot of movie recommendations. Do you have any book recommendations? And I responded, I read trash. I read, <laughs> I'm going through your garbage right now. I'm like, ooh. No, I read, like, I'm not knocking this stuff because I do enjoy it. I read Star Trek novels. I really enjoy those. I I enjoy them, but it's not something I would recommend. And I'll read zombie books. I'll read stuff by Joe McKinney. But, I mean, like, those are, it's hard to recommend a book versus I can recommend a movie. You can watch it the first five minutes. You're like, oh, you know, that's good. Or you finish it and it's only like an hour and a half of your life. It's really hard to recommend a book. But I got a book I have to recommend, a Dead Rabbit Recommends book. Because the author just died. Not like I wouldn't have recommended if that hadn't happened, but it popped back on my wrist. I actually just bought another copy of this book. It's one of the few books I've read twice. I'm going to get ready to read it a third time. I bought a copy of this book a month ago. I read it in high school. Steve Damewood recommended it to me. He basically is all this should be Steve Damewood's week. I read it again in college. It's called Monster, the Autobiography of an L.A. Gang Member. This should be required reading for anyone who's into true crime. It's basically a true crime book written by the person committing the crimes. He's in prison writing this book. It's totally true. It's not fictional. There's a man, his name was, he passed away just today on uh, June 8th, but uh, Sanyeka Shakur. And he was the co-founder of the 8-Tray Gangster Crips in Los Angeles. Fascinating story. It starts off in the late 1970s, carries to about the early 90s, and then he ends up in prison. He becomes a Muslim and he's trying to reform his behavior. It's that narrative arc that we've seen in the autobiography of Malcolm X. But Malcolm X was like a car thief and a pimp in his early days. And so when he goes to prison and he's trying to find something to hold on to and he joins the Nation of Islam, it's an easy pivot from basic like minor crimes to finding God. Monster, because that was his gang name. He, he murders people throughout his life. It's a fascinating book. This is the story of a murderer who is constantly killing people with no regard to anything. And he's writing this stuff, and then he just moves on to the next paragraph. It's horrifying. It's just a fascinating book. There's one part of it that I never forgot where he's, like, hanging out. He's hanging out with his gang, and some dude was in the Navy. Like, he, his girlfriend... I don't remember. It's been years since I read it, but, like, his girlfriend's cousin was in the Navy, and he comes and he hangs out with Monster. And he goes, hey, I got this flare gun off the boat. It was a sign of this boat. I was able to smuggle this flare gun off. You want it? Monster's like, yeah, sure. And then he takes it to the state fair or the county fair, and he shoots a rival gang member with it and sets him on fire. And then it just goes in, <laughs> then it just goes in the next paragraph. When His very first thing, when he was 13 years old, he had a double-barreled, sawed-off shotgun. He walked up to a park where some kids were playing basketball just a little older than him, I believe, and he put the double barrel up to the chain link fence and pulled the trigger twice, and a bunch of people start scattering, and at least one or two of them are laying on the ground, and he leaves. That's how the the story starts off. And he got his nickname Monster because he stomped on an old man's face for so long. The guy was permanently disfigured, and the police said only a monster could do this. And he's like, that's my name. It's a it's a fascinating book because he it's not like he's an anti-hero. It's not like you're like, oh, he's doing this for truth. Just it's a it's such a bizarre read. It is really such a bizarre read because you're reading this guy's story and he's the protagonist in his story. 
And it's an interesting history book of L.A. at that time period and the gang crisis at that time period. He goes on to explain, it used to be that when we wanted guns, we'd break into someone's house, we'd steal two revolvers and a shotgun. But as crack started flowing into the city and we were making tons of money, we began buying guns by the crate. We began having AK-47s shipped in from other countries. And at one point, as they were buying all these guns, the arms dealer said, hey, do you want to buy a grenade launcher? And he looks at the dude and goes, what am I going to do with the grenade launcher? Like, that's ridiculous. And nowadays we have gangs that have their own armored vehicles. Fascinating, fascinating first-person view of the gang wars starting off in the 1970s to the 1990s. He's passed away. We, he, he was 57 years old. As of today, we don't know how he passed away. I, I watched this YouTube channel called Nick916 where he covers, like, true crime stuff in Sacramento. And he mentioned he was going to have... He was trying to set up an interview with him, but he said his addictions kept getting the worse of him. So it could have been a drug-addicted thing. It's just a fascinating book. If you're interested in true crime, it is a must-read. If you're not into true crime... It, see, again, this is like my thing with, with books. I recommend it to people who enjoy true crime or people who don't know anything about L.A. gang society. Because this book will bring you right... If that stuff interests you, this book is something you have to read. But again, if, it's, if those things don't interest you then I don't. I, it's not one of those books that I say you have to read. You have to read. 1984 is a book I think everybody should read. I think that book is... That's another book I've read more than once. That, The Hobbit, Monster, and World War Z. Those are the only four books I've ever read more than once. They're a very, very diverse group of books. But, yeah, if you are interested in true crime, check out Monster, the autobiography of an L.A. gang member. I have a copy that I just bought, and I'm going to reread it and um, maybe get some more insight on that. Beatrice, go ahead and land this carpenter copter here at Santander, Spain. The year is 1997. It's nighttime. We're walking off the carpenter copter. We're wearing our tourist clothing, our big floppy hats. Beatrice is reading her copy of Monsters. She's like, no, I'm not. That book doesn't interest me at all. The book sounds terrifying. It's really, It is really interesting, though. Okay, Beatrice, you're not reading the book. You're reading like Nora Roberts or whatever. We're walking off of the carpenter copter and we see a young woman. Soretta McPherson is sitting on this beach all alone and she sees out on the distance these lights hovering off in the distance. They're just gently gliding over the sea. The lights, though, eventually leave. And other people join her on the beach. Not friends of hers, just there are other people on the beach now. And she's still sitting there just enjoying the night. All of a sudden, Soretta hears someone walking up to her. She turns and she sees a tall, thin man coming towards her. Man might not be the right word. There was something odd about this person. I mean, there can be odd things about humans too, but there was something not right about this person. One, he was wearing a plastic suit, right? He was wearing a plastic suit. That's your first dead giveaway. Something's not right. He's wearing a plastic suit. It's kind of like a coverall. So it's not like it was a plastic suit like that robot from Pluto Nash. It was actually like a biohazard suit, but without the helmet. He's walking towards her, and he had an expressionless face with gray skin. Very, very pallid man. Uh, he's not making zombie noises. I don't know why I started doing that. 
He's not making zombie noises, but he's walking closer. He walks and he sits down next to her. And as she's looking at him, she realizes he only has four fingers on each hand. This tall man looks to her and goes, You should not get married. This really scared Soretta. Because she was about to get married. Who was this man? How did he know this stuff? Where did he get that outfit? What happened to his other fingers? These are all questions that Soretta wanted answers to, but she wasn't going to stick around to find out. She jumps up and she runs home. Soretta told this story to her friends. She thought it was a weird event. It was a weird thing, and I think it would be something that you would share with people, right? Hey, what'd you do today? Well, uh, a giant man with gray skin told me not to get married. What? But it just became a memory. It just became a memory. And Soretta does get married, like she had planned. Everything was going great. She had found her soulmate. But a few months after she was married, she was murdered. She was found at home alone with a towel wrapped around her neck. She was strangled. When the police began investigating this crime, several of her neighbors said that around the same time that she was murdered, a tall gray man was spotted hanging out around the apartment complex. <laughs> the police are doing like a police sketch. They're drawing some big old tall weirdo. The neighbor's like, yep, that's him. Why you did why they didn't call the police why they didn't call the police when a tall gray dude was hanging out there for so long who knows but maybe things are different in Spain maybe maybe that is not abnormal for whatever reason they didn't call the cops because this giant weirdo was walking around and that matched up to the story she had told her friends that there was a tall gray weirdo who told her she shouldn't get married she gets married a couple months later she's murdered when her funeral was held when her friends and family had shown up to pay their respects to Soretta, some of the attendees of the funeral looked up into the night sky and saw several luminous objects hovering in the area. This story came from Testigo Ovni, number five, published in 1998. I got it from thinkaboutitdocs.com, one of my favorite websites I go to all the time. Is it true? I tried looking for any other information on Soretta McPherson. I couldn't. Everything that I found with her name linked back to this story. As far as I can tell, this person didn't exist outside of this narrative. But that's always a little fishy when trying to back stuff up. 1997 is recent enough that we should be able to get other hits on this. However, there could be other articles on it. They're in Spanish. I wasn't able to pull anything up. So who knows? Taking this story at face value, assuming this isn't just some sort of internet myth going around, taking the story at face value, it's a terrifying new layer on the UFO story. Because we've had stories of aliens coming down and abducting people and running experiments, or coming down and saying, you have been chosen to save the human race, or all sorts of stuff. This one specifically gave her very, very specific information, don't get married. I mean, I think we can assume this is an alien, right? With the luminous objects and things like that. It's not, she, this wasn't outside of old Skin Flint's mind. And Joe's like, don't get married. We assume this is an alien. Very, very specific information saying, don't do this. We've seen aliens give advice, but this is so specific. Don't get married. And then she does. She's murdered shortly afterwards. Why would the aliens care? Well, in the grand scheme of things, they probably don't. But it happened anyway. Let's put our conspiracy caps on and wrap this up. If you have the U.S. Navy, 
doing their job. Their job is to defend the oceans and, and fight pirates. But every so often, every so often you'll have a member of the Navy give a flare gun to a gang member. You'll have a member of the armed forces go rogue. And sometimes it could be something just stupid and not thinking things through like that. Or they could be a serial killer. We covered that one guy who was in the Navy who was killing prostitutes. We have all of this stuff, right? But the U.S. Navy itself is this organization. What if aliens are the same way? Where they have these missions where they come down and they go, You are the chosen one. You will, you will save humanity. Don't use nukes. Fix the environment. All that stuff. But every so often, you're going to have one who's a little screwy. You're going to have one that's a little nuts. Taking in everything we know about aliens and what aliens are capable of doing, what if this tall gray man came down and fell in love with Soretta McPherson? He viewed her from afar. He stalked her. When he heard she was going to get married, he reacted like any insane stalker would. He threatened her. And when she got married anyways, he made those threats come true. Or did he? UFO lore is full of stories of clones. Cloned humans. What if he simply cloned Soretta and left that dead body in her house so no one would look for her? What if the real Soretta is still alive? On a starship somewhere. Beyond rescue. Beyond hope. Held captive by an alien who is obsessed with her. Who would use technology so advanced, it seems like magic to us. Just so he could have his desires filled. But just like human perverts... Eventually, this alien gets bored with his prize. And he disposes of her like garbage. It is only then when this tall, gray man pilots his ship back to Earth. He tells his commanders he's going on a normal routine mission. Something that his race has done for thousands of years on this globe. Instead, he's coming back to find another lover, another woman, that he will take, and no one can stop him. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Dead Rabbit Radio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys.